today about young people who arrived in the UK um, and we'll look at it within a European context as um, unaccompanied, independent, separated. There are difficulties with the terminology. Children, so arriving without any accompanying adults. Um, and what really happens to them post-18. Um, and particularly with respect to what access they have to social rights and ongoing support. So the quote, the next day you're on the street, is something that comes directly from uh, young people, a number of young people that have said that to me. You know, these critical points in time when they age out of care, maybe at 18, sometimes at 21, sometimes at 25, or wherever, they end up uh, on the street. Their, 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 their support ends from one day to the next. And we've used the term the tactics of time in managing welfare support because it's obviously the very sort of clear time definitions at points at which young people can and cannot access support. But also young people very much talk in these terms um, it, uh, as though the state almost uses this notion of time and applies time to curtail benefits at, at, at key particular points. Okay, so just to give a bit of an outline, I'm going to talk a little bit about the research context and the policy context. So looking at the situation of young people um, ageing out of uh, support at 18, um, but within the wider European context. So a little bit about the theory and methodology um, that we're using now and, uh, and, we'll, and we'll take forward in the work that we're doing here. Um, talk about um, welfare and social rights uh, at the point of transition as young people become adults with all the problems there are with that term. Um, and then Jenny's going to pick up and actually present some kind of perspectives from young people themselves about their experiences of accessing social rights, as well as the sorts of strategies that they try and employ to reclaim social rights within, within the system. And then we'll draw, draw a few conclusions. So in terms of the um, research um, more generally, this work kind of um, builds on stuff that um, I was completing towards the end of 2008. Um, work for um, commissioned by the Department of Health, which was very interested in looking at the emotional um, well-being outcomes for young people, um, unaccompanied young people seeking asylum in the UK. Um, and out of that came a, a number of ideas that then I developed further using some of that data, plus additional data for my PhD. I'll talk a little bit about the, the theoretical frames in a minute. And then last year, so it's been sort of stuff that's been, I've, I've been working on has been on the back boiler for quite a long time. Last year we gained a pump priming fund from the OUP Fell Fund, which looked at this uh, notion of protracted limbo. So it was a piece of scoping work to examine the trajectories of former unaccompanied um, children across Europe um, as, they, as they sort of become adults. It involved a literature review and policy analysis at the European and the national level. And then also involved um, some scoping work which involved kind of ongoing over a period of six months participant observation with a group of young people through a charitable NGO and which was followed up with interviews with young people um, subject to immigration control. But I think it's important to say that a lot of the ideas that evolved from that tallied very much with the previous research data which was already quite interesting. And from that, but what the Fell Fund also enabled us to do was to develop a research design um, for a bigger project. And we've just been awarded a three-year ESRC grant starting from October to conduct the first sort of long longitudinal research to examine well-being outcomes of uh, young people subject to immigration control. Primarily in the UK, there's a grant-linked studentship which will 
developed the work in Italy, particularly around notions of social networks, and possibly as well being replicated subject to further funding in, in Norway and in Belgium. Um, so it's important to say that the, that the focus on welfare, the stroke social rights, is, is a key component of that wider research agenda. Okay, in terms of well-being then, um, just to say that it's contested across different disciplines. It means very different things for different disciplines. It can be defined as anything from the absence of symptoms to something much more broader, holistic, if we want to use that word. Uh, it has different meanings and associations for adults and children, the literature tells us. There are lots of, lots of debate about uh, what it is and how we can measure it. But there is some agreement on the fact of its multidimensionality, that it's more than the absence of disease. So the Almata Declaration in, in 1978 shifted that um, policy agenda. Um, but so it's more around physical, psychological, and social well-being. There's a subjective and an objective element. But it's also around rights. It's about protection from social exclusion and poverty. SEN determines it as being around capabilities, NUSBORM around a sense of belonging and control over one's environment. Um, and White and others have talked about being at ease uh, with one's place in the world. So it has these multiple meanings, and I think it's important to say that we haven't narrowed down how we're going to define it yet, but we want to try and sort of capture quite a lot of that. Um, and the work that I've been doing um, in, in the past links the notion of well-being to this, Gibbon's notion and others, of ontological security. That's a kind of sense of order, stability, routine, to be able to project yourself into a future. Um, and the importance of sustaining a biographical narrative, something which young people repeatedly say is difficult for them, um, about being able to tell a story about who they are, where they're going, um, and being able to be open and transparent about who they are and, and, and where they're going to different audiences. Um, and it links to this Antonovsky salutogenic model of, of well-being, which is about having this sense of coherence. So well-being, start, the starting point is that well-being from young people's subjective notions is linked to a sense of a viable future. But sustaining that narrative and order and routine and sense of future is very much contingent on access to resources, including social rights. Okay, so that's where we're coming from. Social rights and welfare, as everyone here is, is, is very much aware, um, is, is a very sort of contested area. Um, so that in terms of the welfare or social rights provisions we're talking of for these young people, it's about care to accommodation. So if young people are sort of under 16, they're tended to be thought of as being in care in the sense of being in foster care sometimes or some sort of protected arrangement. And a shift towards accommodation within a caring system, possibly, is access to education, access to social protections and allowances, access to healthcare. Um, we're coming from the angle of the notion of the social construction of rights, so Hartley Dean, but also particularly Lydia Morris's work, who's talked about the stratification and proliferation of statuses which have with them associated rights and entitlements, and that, that things are taken away and added in at different points according to those different statuses. But I think it also speaks to the work of Brad Turner around this sort of collective moral sympathy, that there are multiple mediators of rights. Um, there, there are a wide range of 
um, individuals, institutions, systems that young people engage with or, or come into contact with um, within the asylum immigration process and that there are multiple opportunities to support that access, those access to rights but also multiple opportunities to, to stymie them. And, the, and I think that's really important. So it does end up, and, and, and previous research we've sort of argued, there's, there are notions of entitlement but also notions of serendipity in terms, in terms of whether or not you can harness that collective moral sympathy, whether or not you can um, get the right sort of people on your side, etc., or, or present this, the type of young person that's likely to be able to access those entitlements. So it's a bit more than access to um, being discretionary because of street-level bureaucrats. We think there's also probably um, a story to tell in terms of the welfare systems, um, that there may be um, a question about different welfare types offering different sorts of provisions and entitlements, and whether or not there's some synergy between the type of welfare system and the type of provisions that are accorded. We haven't looked at that yet, but it's certainly something that we can, we're looking to take forward. And I think the other thing to mention here is the importance in this case of the mixed economy of welfare. So very often, even where the state um, provision breaks down, it will be NGOs or the charities or communities or wider networks that actually step in and provide some elements of that support. The terminology across Europe is, is complex. We struggle with who we're talking about here. It's not just young people that come through the asylum system. Um, our view is that young people tend to be funneled through the asylum system here. There are very sort of few options. Um, but it's about independent young migrants. It's young people possibly subject to immigration control. All of these other terms are used um, within the UK and across Europe um, in, in, and, all, and are all in different ways quite problematic. But the importance, I think, is that those different, um, different classifications are linked to social rights which are linked to these different temporary statuses. So young people have to sort of navigate their way through these according to the different classifications that they're, that they're given. The European context, on average there are around 12,000 young people each year that come to claim asylum as unaccompanied minors. Uh, again, wary of, of language here. Um, but there are also uh, an indefinite number of young people or children that we don't know anything about, so that maybe come in under the radar of immigration systems, um, etc., or maybe just institutionalised in different ways. So whereas in the UK, this funnelling that I spoke about is really quite apparent. In Spain, between 2008 and 11, there were only 60 applications for asylum for, from unaccompanied minors, yet an approximate 5,000 independent migrant children within Spain. So there are all sorts of um, complications around that. Um, and if we look at sort of asylum applications in these different countries, this is quite a complex graph, but I think the one that we're probably most interested in here is this, is this top line, the UK line. So back in 2008, we were looking at more than 4,000 applications for asylum from unaccompanied minors. By 2011, and this trajectory has kind of continued um, to last year as well, it's down to below 1,500. Yet the overall numbers of young people seeking asylum in Europe are pretty much staying the same. So what's happening? Um, what, maybe there are decisions being made in country of origin by systems, by structures that are mediating the migration process, um, and that different decisions are being made about where children are, are claiming asylum. <coughs> 
So the European response um, has been, at, at, at a policy and recommendation level at least, beyond Europe. Um, and the Council of Europe um, uh, has worked together um, to push towards a sort of harmonisation, really, of the, of the policy response. It's re received criticism from NGOs and civil society stakeholders, um, such as the Council of Europe Commission of Human Rights and the EU Fundamental Rights Agency and various other civil society activist groups. And the main, the main criticisms are about the absence of attention to experiences of young migrants once they turn 18. But also this shift as well towards this uh, very normative idea of life project planning, which we, we've spoken about um, before, and which is based really on three basic assumptions that um, young people will comply with their so-called best interests. Um, so life project planning is played out, say, in the UK system by pathway plans, which are developed in local authorities, supposedly with young people. Again, the focus is very much on return as, as the primary, um, a primary goal. Um, and there are always the assumptions of best interest are that young people will comply with this idea of return and control that return is a durable solution for young people, um, and that young people belong back in their countries of origin. And those three assumptions are, you know, are basically what drives that, that general response. We've, um, the working paper that Jenny and I put out last year actually um, critiqued these three assumptions, and we've discussed that in, in more detail there, so we're not going to go into more of the European uh, context today. In terms of the UK, um, between 2006 and 12, there were around 14,000 unaccompanied asylum-seeking children in the UK. The main countries of origin are these, although it changes from year to year. I should have said earlier, but I, I, I suspect most people know in this context that most children claiming asylum will not get refugee status. What they'll get is a time-limited discretionary leave to remain because of the fact that there are children and therefore cannot be returned. So reaching 18 then is a key milestone in the process, um, and at which point they normally have to make a fresh um, asylum claim or a claim to be able to remain in the UK. Um, but apart from the young people that enter and, and claim asylum, there are an unknown numbers of young people that enter under the ra uh, radar of immigration authorities and very little is known about their lives as they turn 18. But ageing out at 18 is um, a critical period. It's the end of temporary legal status granted on the grounds of being a child. So Jamal from Chad says on my 18th birthday, they moved out, uh, moved me out of a semi-independent house. I had an exam on the same day, they didn't understand. They're so caught up with the rules. And then from there stems the uncertainty about the future and how long um, young people can remain in, in the UK. At that point, they enter a, a fresh asylum uh, claim or an appeals process. And they receive uh, automatically a drop in rights and entitlements unless they are defined as a care leaver. So a young person who's been looked after for at least 13 weeks since the age of 14 and has been in care on their 16th birthday. Um, Within this, within that process, age is obviously absolutely key, and the a large number of young people are um, subjected to age assessments, which will obviously therefore affect whether or not they, they meet these criteria. Um, and that's anyway. Okay. 
But irrespective of the, of the kind of rights that they might be entitled to as a care leaver, their immigration status trumps all. So at the age of 18, if their appeal rights exhausted, and therefore they've made an appeal, and that appeal has been denied, which increasingly that, that's the case. I mean, the, the success rate on appeals is, is, is on the decline. There are immediate curtailments to entitlements to benefit and support, or at least there may be. What we find is that different local authorities actually then respond differently. Some of them will conduct a human rights assessment, and young people will receive ongoing support if they are destitute plus. So, for example, if they have no access to um, resources, but they have a young child, or they have a severe mental health problem as well, in addition. Um, their support may be conditional on compliance with immigration controls. So you can stay in this accommodation, have this support, provided you go each week and sign on to the immigration authorities. Um, but we know that there are local authority differences in practice. Young people talk about how they're treated differently from other young people. So within local authorities and in between different local authorities. There's a great deal of confusion over entitlements. There's the possibility of detention and deportation, even though, as Matthew Gibney has pointed out, there is this big um, deportation gap. That is, the actual practical uh, practicalities and logistics of, of deporting people. Um, but often the fear of deportation means that young people make the transition to illegality and they disengage from systems and structures and local authority services. Just on the point in terms of um, deportation, I think it's fair to say that we know very little. We know very little in terms of numbers. We had a, a Freedom of Information request um, a table by Sarah Tether, and this was the data that came back. We've seen reports um, similarly reporting, for example, 2011 by the Refugee Support Network, who also asked for a Freedom of Information request, and the response for 2011 wasn't, 100, uh, wasn't 183, but was actually 100. So there's an awful lot of problems with, with these data. And, and also a, a, and a big question mark in terms of the number of young people who have been, who have been deported, who are currently being detained, etc., and who were previously um, supported by local authorities. So what we see is, is, is kind of clear evidence of the stratification of rights and entitlements. It depends on young people's age, and with all those clauses around age assessments and age being disputed, time spent in the UK and their legal status. The significant ages are 16, 18, 21, and 25. Um, and yeah, and the whole sort of care lever clause is difficult for some young people. Okay, well, I'm not going to go into great detail in this, but just to give you some idea, obviously the younger young people are. So the under 16 group, if they're in foster care, they'll get support with education they'll get looked after child support, and they'll get access to primary and secondary um, health care. By the time they reach 18 to 21, or 21 to 25, the different kind of, um, the different classifications that they have are very different. So they might be supported under independent living, or they might be transferred to the adult asylum system. They may get no support at all, they may get full entitlement, and they may get limited local authority destitution support. And I should actually say that that's, um, the point about the human rights assessment at the local authority level does vary enormously, and some local authorities actually do continue to support young people, or they may decide to support some young people and not others. So that's, um, that's which is also sort of fairly problematic. 
Okay, I'm going to hand over to Jenny now, who's actually going to talk about how some of this actually pans out in practice for, for young people. So I get to do the fun bit, which is um, actually encompass. Maybe it's not the fun bit, because you guys really love all of the legal entitlements and policies, so maybe this is the boring bit. But um, talk about young people's lived experiences of these different transitions um, and how they experience um, accessing or trying to access these different social rights. Um, so I wanted to start with just giving two case studies um, of around 10 people who we worked with in depth over six months last summer and to get a sense, even over that six-month period, of how their lives were shifting, and they were all aged between 16 and 23, um, was really striking. It really is a kind of shifting terrain. Um, so this, these are two young people, Elizabeth and Peter, both 21, both arrive in the UK when they are 16. So first of all, Peter um, was from Eritrea. He left when he was 14 or 15. He isn't even really sure himself. Um, he spent some time in Sudan, about five months, and then uh, in Italy, where he was also detained en route to the UK. When he arrived in the UK, um, he'd lost his brother by this point as well. He set off with his brother, but they came, became uh, separated in Italy. Um, when he arrived in the UK, he'd been fingerprinted already in Italy, so he was sent back. Um, and this wouldn't happen now, just to give you an example of how rules and policy and regulation shifts, so now that wouldn't happen as a minor that he would be subject um, to Dublin requirement. Um, but he came back to the UK anyway, arrived for a second time. Uh, this time um, he wasn't sent back uh, to Italy. He was assigned a social worker for 10 days, and then he was age assessed to be 17. That was contested. A second age assessment found him to be 17 and a half years old. Um, and he then met, spent six months in an asylum hostel for young people and started attending college um, until he was 18. Uh, by the time he turned 18, he'd already been refused asylum. Um, so at that point, he became a refused asylum seeker. He was evicted from the um, young asylum hostel um, and he was homeless and in receipt of no support at all. He obviously didn't meet the care leaver requirement, um, so that meant that he had no um, more entitlement um, as a young person. However, Peter is a very, very charismatic young man um, and very determined. He wants to be a radiographer and he's so passionate about radiography, it's actually a little bit geeky and quite weird. But he's very determined. He um, founded a charity um, through his church network that he got involved with, um, which gave him a bus pass, a laptop and £30 a week, um, which allowed him to continue college. And that college didn't require him to kind of present any documents at the start of a new academic year or anything, um, which was again serendipitous because some colleges would have required that. Um, and, and in our research we found lots of young people who were having real problems trying to get into a college in the first place because they were really wary about taking people with um, irregular immigration status. Um, so he's been quite lucky, if you like, at this point and very determined. Um, when he's 20, he puts in a fresh asylum claim. He gets some fresh evidence sent over to him. Um, one year passes and he's heard nothing. Um, he's got a good lawyer who started chasing this up because he should have heard something by a year. And again, that was an NGO which helped him with that. Still, at this point, even though he could be in receipt as asylum support um, because of this claim, he, he doesn't want that because he wants to stay put in London where his networks are and keep going to college. Um, he applies to university with great grades um, to do radiography. He gets into King's College. Um, if he's granted refugee status, he'll be able to access student finance and go. But um, actually, we found out today that his, uh, his fresh claim was refused, so 
We don't quite know what's um, going to happen to Peter, but he's currently looking at uh, a bursary system with an NGO which um, gives limited financial support uh, for asylum seekers and helps them lobby um, to negotiate fees with the university. Um, Elizabeth also um, <laughs> came to the attention of the UK authorities when she was 16 when she arrived with her sister from Rwanda. Um, at that point, both were enter, um, sent to a children's home um, and they didn't have an age assessment. Um, at 17, uh, Elizabeth was moved into independent living, uh, but her sister, who was two years younger, was moved into foster care. Um, and you'll see some quotes later just saying how terrifying this was for her because it happened from one day to the next and she um, was really quite upset when she was telling us how she just had no idea what was happening to her sister. Um, but when she's 19, um, she finds out that both her and her sister, their asylum applications have been lost um, and withdrawn, so they have to put in... Uh, the same asylum claim basically again. Um, she's very, very frustrated about this. She calls it lost time, wasted time. Um, and at 19, her and her sister move in with their aunt, who's in London. So they're back reunited and living together. At 21, Elizabeth stops receiving support as a care leader um, because she's no longer in formal education. She can't get that support continued until she's um, 24, well, up until she turns 20, 25. Um, she's finished her A-levels, done as much education as she possibly can, so now she's just waiting. Um, she's waiting now to be reassigned to NAS, the Asylum Support Service, um, but again, she doesn't want to be dispersed. She wants to be able to stay with her sister and her aunt in London. And she says that her sister's social worker still helps her out and gives her advice on these kind of things, which is a resource for her. She's also applied to university to do events management, um, and if she gets refugee status, she'll be able to access student finance. And also, because she'll be a care leaver um, who is in full-time education, she'll have extra support <coughs> reinstated as well. I should say that the young people we were working with for this study um, were very much um, high-flying, very ambitious young people uh, who were already known to an NGO. Um, so. This picture I'm presenting now isn't necessarily representative of, of the experiences of, of all, by any means, um, young people in this situation. But we were quite struck, as I think Elaine said earlier, by actually in terms of this thrust forward, this determination um, to keep moving forward with your life and, and access what you're entitled to. It was very similar to young people who hadn't kind of been to school or college or who didn't have a lot of the resources that these pe young people had. Um, so I don't know, maybe Elaine talk a bit more about that uh, later but I just wanted to make that clear um, but one thing that we were really struck by was how much the young people we were working with were talking in terms of time and they'd really kind of internalised the language that was being used by all of the officials around them um, you know all of the terminology I've got DLR, three years five years and they were asking lots of questions about time like refugee status that's five years or this many years it was kind of really in their mind um, and for some young people, there were two young Afghans who were part of the course that we were involved with, and they, um, they were kind of saying, well, we didn't even know when our birthdays was. This is kind of a very new uh, kind of concept to us that our lives are being ruled by this. Um, so they, but they very quickly adapted and, and learned how to speak the language of the system. Um, so as well as biological time, uh, the other main feature of the, the way they were speaking about their engagement with, with social rights was about bureaucratic rhythms. So lots has been written on the experience of limbo and waiting for all asylum seekers, not just 
uh, not just young, young people in the asylum system. Um, also periods of lost time, um, life on hold, and, and these sudden transitions in this expression, in the meantime, in the meantime, got to keep going in the meantime, um, was really common. And there's a really great piece of action research by uh, a London-based youth group called Brighter Futures, which talks about this experience of being in protracted limbo. Um, but as well as this um, feeling that things were already slow and waiting, um, there was also a real sense that sometimes things would suddenly go really quickly. And um, so Jamal um, from Chad explained, the country here is very quick. By the time the people get themselves up to date and catch up with the knowledge everybody else has, the time has not been enough. The time has been consumed by the time they wake up and realise everything. And once the time has been consumed, there's no going back to fix things. You're 19 or 20, you're looked at as a different individual. So on one hand, it's this experience of really waiting, but then it's also this, this sense, it's a race against time. I've only got a couple more years before um, I become adult and, and have to have, have things fixed. So the three main ways in which young people we were working with experienced uh, this, this kind of shifting terrain of access to social rights as they kind of transitioned to adulthood was impermanence, a sense of total control, and a sense of enforced dependency. Um, and again, it was really striking how, how similar uh, the young people's experience was. And none of them had met each other before they were involved in a, uh, the project. And they were kind of, you could just see how happy some of them were to be able to share these experiences with each other and say, yes, you know what I mean, etc. And maybe we can talk a bit more about the methodology of that at the end. But so this sense of impermanence was about these temporary arrangements with respect to housing, social protections and education, training and employment. Elizabeth said, it makes it hard to move forward because you can't really do anything. I can't go to uni, I can't get a job, there are things I want to do, I can still see them there, but it's getting to it that's the problem. Um, and that also had an impact on social networks and relationships. So Elizabeth also said, you know, she'd had boyfriends, but it's really hard. At what point do you tell them, oh, by the way, I might not be here next year or what have you. And she found that really difficult and uncomfortable. Um, and there's some very interesting research in the States looking at um, personal relationships and, and young undocumented migrants um, that kind of draws out similar conclusions. And one thing, this is a bit of a tangent, but um, I just wanted to mention it. Um, is in my current work, I'm observing asylum appeals in Birmingham, and I've seen quite a lot of former unaccompanied minors cases, about 25. And in a couple, um, there's been an Article 8 uh, claim advance, so the solicitor will, will say, this young person has been in the UK for five years, they, they've got an education, they've established these relationships, etc. Um, and a couple of times I've seen the Home Office representatives arguing, well, you establish that private life with a, a precarious immigration status, so it kind of doesn't count. And this has been argued um, in cases for adults for quite some time, but it's the first time I've seen it applied to young people with discretionary leave to remain. And I think it opens up quite an interesting slash terrifying box of possibilities when you think about refugee status being a five-year precarious status. And, and, and when you're especially in your formative years, what does that mean, that, um, the way that nexus of precariousness and private life? Um, and I think there's a lot to unpack there and, and, and look at, but that's for another time. Um, secondly, the sense of total control, really kind of like big brother, thwarting of your individual project. Uh, so again, Elizabeth, I think every difficulty in life is pretty much related to my immigration status because it affects every single thing. 
and that was in the context of talking about boyfriends. <coughs> and this arbitrary power of mediators, some of them make you feel like everything's going to be okay, and some make you feel like you're going to go back tomorrow. Um, and again, um, Peter, who had a really great lawyer, um, who was able to chase up his asylum claim and say, look, we haven't heard anything for a year, um, whereas another lawyer might, might not have um, uh, paid that much attention to that issue. And these sudden transitions, so I mentioned the separation from uh, the two sisters, Elizabeth and her sister. She said her sister's social, her social worker, um, Elizabeth's sister's social worker, was like, you're leaving today. And she just packed up her things. And I was like, I don't even know if I will see her again. And this was clearly an experience that was just really traumatic for her. And finally, this irony of turning 18, all of a sudden, um, if you haven't been granted refugee status or, or the extension of DLR, another kind of um, legal status, this sense of, okay, well, now I'm an adult, but I'm also increasingly precarious, and I lack in the independence I had before because now I'm not supported and I can't work, I can no longer go uh, to school or what have you. So this sense of turning 18 being this, rather than associating it with this transition to adulthood, as we might um, in a normative sense, turning 18 being suddenly completely left on your own in an almost kind of like you're going backwards sense. And also this sense that you're suddenly dependent on friends and relatives. And a lot of the young people we were working with were talking about being a burden, feeling awkward. Um, and then also trying to get your head around these system changes. One person, uh, Jamal, said it was like Chinese whispers. Like you just constantly had to be proactively looking for information. Even if you've got social workers there, they might not tell you the things that you need to know, or they might get it wrong, etc. Um, and the system not being user friendly. So Jamal spent about 30 minutes telling us about his, his one-man campaign to get the £1.50 levy on, uh, on support for care leavers revoked. So they're given a card with uh, just over £30 of pocket money a week. And every time they use it in the cash machine, they have to pay £1.50. And he was saying, this is ridiculous because it stops them budgeting properly, etc. Um, and just the sense that even the money he has isn't his. So he mounted a, a campaign to try and get that changed, which, which he was really proud of. And finally, the biggest thing that really came out was just not being able to work and the difficulties um, they were facing in volunteering. Because even now, it's been a bit, it's been cleared up. It, it's still ambiguous whether asylum seekers or well, sorry, whether refused asylum seekers can volunteer or not. And, and some organisations just won't even look um, at people in their situation. And that was specifically difficult for one of the young people who wanted to be a medic and had excellent grades, but she just couldn't get work experience anywhere. And, and the young person, Peter, who wanted to be a radiographer, trying to get any kind of relevant work experience was just proving impossible for him, um, which is something all young people face. But so what were these young people doing to try and reclaim their social rights? Um, a real array of strategies, which they really talked about in terms of strategies. It was All of this was very self-conscious. It was very consciously, I'm, well, they're doing this and I'm going to do that. Um, so filling time, accelerating the pace of processes and procedures, keeping up, especially with peers, and taking measured steps forward. So again, they really framed this in terms of tactics of time to counter the tactics of the system. It was all very tactical, but became quite paranoid. Um, so the first one, filling time, which is this kind of sense of in the meantime, um, one of the things was voluntary work. Um, so Elizabeth um, from Rwanda said, it helps not 
you know, keep thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen? What if this and that? What if this doesn't go well? What if they send me back? I don't really have time to dwell on the negative things. Um, sport, so for Peter, when you have problems, you go to the gym and you work out and forget everything bothering you. Playing football and going to the gym really helps just making myself do things. And I was quite struck. Um, I'd seen P met Peter about six times. Um, and then Elaine and I met with him to do a longer interview. And he had his back. And on the course that we were involved with, which I, I should have said it was a photography course um, that we would, I was involved with doing participant observation, he always had a bag, a sports bag, and everybody would call him Sporty Peter. Um, it's not very original, but Sporty Peter. Um, and he explained to us, well, yeah, I've got my gym kit in here, but I also have everything I own because from one day to the next, I don't know where I'm sleeping. Um, and it was really quite striking, that kind of the different aspects of, of his identity. Um, also, religion was important and organised activities, to, like the course, to keep busy. Um, accelerating time. So the first and the primary one was about speeding up decision-making on legal statuses um, to try and stop this limbo. Um, so one aspect was trying to find the best possible formal help with the system. Um, you don't want to be a social worker being talked about by a group of young former accompanied <laughs> minors. Is, you know, always comparing. What's your social worker done for you? What's your social worker done for you? For you? Like holding them to account, trying to make sure that they're accessing everything they can. And I've never met such a group of people so clued up on, on their rights. It was really quite extraordinary. They should become social workers because they know all about the system. Um, and the second one was, yeah, really using their own initiative to, to find out things. So Ibrahim from, from Darfur said, some people don't believe me. They say, you're coming new one year or two years. How did you get this refugee status? Yeah, me, I tell them it's the system. If you know the system, you get papers early. And for Ibrahim, he started this, this kind of discerning process before he even arrived in the UK. He'd been through about 10 different countries and worked out that he would have to wait for a long time before he found out whether he would be granted asylum or not. And it was interesting that actually it was that as much as the prospect of being granted asylum that really motivated him in continuing to travel through Europe and claim asylum in the UK. So it wasn't just the, the sense that, oh, I stand more of a chance of being recognised as a refugee in the UK. It was, well, the process is quicker, so I can get on with my life and carry on with my education. Um, I know too many people who are just in limbo in the UK. So that was really interesting. Um, and again, for um, uh, Jamal, um, he was really frustrated how long it was taking to trace his family. The Red Cross were being really slow, and so he took it into his own hands and was proactively trying to find people who could look for his family and find some information. Um, the second aspect of, of speeding up access to rights is working around the welfare system as governed by the state. So for Ibrahim, um, he was granted refugee status, but uh, as many of you all know, there's often a problem with transition from one welfare system to the next. I'm, I'm not sure if that's come up um, in these talks, but um, that can be quite poorly managed. So he ended up homeless. And he got in with a group of activists who, who introduced him to squatting. Um, and he said, my life has changed because I got help from my friends. Um, and he went and lived in a squat and loved it and ended up spending, you know, well, that's where he lives now. And he was really insistent that this isn't illegal, this is my right. You know, the system has let me down and, and I'm going to claim my right to housing. And it was really quite, uh, quite striking. Um, also in terms of higher education, um, Several of the young people we were working with were in negotiations with individual universities 
not all with the support of, of uh, an NGO, but a couple of them with the support of an NGO, to, to try and get the individual university to recognise them as home students rather than international students and allow them to begin a course as an asylum seeker rather than waiting to hopefully be granted refugee status and be able to access student finance because as an asylum seeker you're not able to access um, student loan or, or, or student finance. Um, and there have been some examples of universities which have actually decided um, to waiver fees, uh, the difference between international fees and home fees for asylum-seeking students, such as um, Manchester. Um, others, such as Exeter, have now started offering bursaries um, for specifically for asylum-seeking students. So I think that's a really kind of interesting example of kind of almost social right welcome pluralism in a, in a different kind of way. Um, and then finally, um, Speeding up access to rights like uh, um, like Jamal with, um, and I should say these are all pseudonyms. I'm quite pleased, I probably mixed them up a bit, but I've kind of got in the zone. Um, <laughs> uh, speeding up access to rights through advocacy. So, uh, you know, um, Jamal campaigning to get rid of the £1.50 levy from a small level, but also, you know, um, Ibrahim was really involved with trying to end detention, having been detained himself for a while. Um, and pretty much all of the young people were really motivated about this higher education point in particular, which is where the course ended up going. Um, keeping up, so this detachment from the normative transition to adulthood and, and trying to keep up with friends as much as you could given the constraints of the system, um, but also trying to keep up appearances. Um, so that goes back to what I said about Peter with his bag, um, sporting Peter. Um, so Elizabeth said, all our friends that we went to college with have moved on into work, or some of them have gone to uni, and it's hard to keep up with them, because they're going to be asking, so what are you doing? What have you been up to? And it's hard to start telling them the whole story. Yeah, I'm not doing anything because of blah, blah, blah. And also, they're all busy doing the same things, you know, so if you have a friend who works, you can get together and talk about it. But I don't have that, so you know it's hard to connect with them like I used to at college. And then, keeping up appearances, Peter says, because if the people around me know everything about me, I'm going to be a different person. They're going to look at me as, ah, this is his situation. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to be like that. I want to be normal, just studying the same as them. So accessing certain social rights and resources was really important to be able to keep up with your friends and maintain a social life. And finally, all of this, the overarching aspect is just going forward, step by step, measured time, all of the young people we were working with had such big ideas for the future and, and many of them said these were dreams that they didn't have when they first came to the UK four or five years ago. One of them said the UK provides an opportunity for big futures. Um, this was Peter from Eritrea and he said when I was back home, you know, I, I never even thought what do I want to do, what do I want to be. It was just, you know, I'll be a dad. Um, and then all of a sudden he said, well, in the UK, you, you see a footballer, you could be a footballer. And, and I really want to be a radiographer. Um, so the futures were really rooted in the UK. As Jamal said, why plant a tree here if I can't see it grow? Peter, if I'm out of London or the UK, I don't really see a future. Like, I don't know. I don't really think like that at all. So it's just about keeping moving towards some kind of goal. Elizabeth said, when I'm doing these things, it kind of feels like I'm moving forward. Maybe it's not technically to the events I want to be working in, but it's still better than doing nothing. And now I'll pass over to Elaine for some conclusions. Okay. So I think sort of in conclusion, really, um, 
young people work with inside and outside of formal systems to move forwards towards a future and um, we're kind of interested in developing that idea further you know there's a, been an awful lot of research that's looked at young people's pasts and where they've come from and trauma etc really important stuff but this actually um, this the importance of future in terms of making decisions and migration decisions and ongoing decisions I think is really important um, the importance of sustaining the biographical narrative as they transition to adulthood, um, linked to this notion of well-being. Um, and for most, that achieving sort of where they want to be is contingent on access to rights. And there are questions of entitlement to social rights which are stratified around their age, around their time in the UK and around legal status. But there's also, as we've seen, a large element of rights which are serendipitous. Um, and, and, you know, we've drawn very much on, you know, they're coming from a number of different sources other than just the state. Um, young people's perceptions of, 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 of rights is really important, I think, and they perceive access to these rights in temporal terms. And more, most generally, that time is not on their side.